whether you're a regular. We're so thankful that you've come. Uh, we are in a study in the book of 1 Corinthians, so you can go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter number 13. And while you're doing that, um, I would like to help you just picture in your mind a woman who is picking petals off of a daisy. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. You've seen that before? Where will that daisy run out of petals? On the one that says he loves me? Or on the one that says he loves me not? While that may be the Calvinist's distorted view of God, it is how people feel sometimes. Never really knowing whether someone truly loves them or not. I mean, why is it such a mystery? We're studying in the book of 1 Corinthians, and starting in chapter number 12, the theme is spiritual gifts. And, man, spiritual gifts truly are excellent. James chapter 1 and verse 17 talks about how every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights. And spiritual gifts are, are perfect, they are good, they are wonderful, and they are excellent. And so in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 31, after the whole discussion on spiritual gifts, it says, But covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. So charity, as it begins in chapter number 13, or love, is more excellent than even the excellence of spiritual gifts that are given to us. And that word charity we saw last week is translated from a Greek word. If none of us know Greek, we may have heard this word before. It's called agape, and in many other places in your Bible, it's also translated as the word love. And so we're going to learn a little more about true love today. You know, true biblical love, it really is a high bar, is it not? I mean, the Bible says in 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 8 that God is love. And with that being the case, God is that agape or love or charity. And that should help us realize that the truth of the matter is we can't actually possibly achieve demonstrating that kind of love on our own. We can't possibly do it in our own strength. But the good news is we can do it, and in fact, we are expected to do it and to live according to this kind of love in our lives. And God's love for us is the ultimate example through which he gives to us and then expects for us to follow. It says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We can actually perceive God's love for us. Why? Because he did something about it. And God expects us to demonstrate our love in such a way that, well, others know what we've done, right? That's what we're supposed to do. The question, I guess, that we all have to come across and we will come across today is, well, okay, that's what we're supposed to do, but do we actually? Do we actually demonstrate biblical love or charity? Well, a lot of people don't. You know, the Bible says, let me remind you, we're going to have a little extended introduction and getting ready for what we're going to look at in chapter number 13. But the Bible does say in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that in these last days, we live in what is described as perilous times. And it's perilous in a lot of ways, but the root might just be because, well, in the last days, a lot of people who call on the name of Jesus don't actually walk with the Lord. So in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse number 3, it starts off by saying, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. Those who are believers in Jesus Christ are going to begin to drop like flies. And if you've been Christian for any length of time, you've probably seen it. It's perilous anytime Christian people just go through the motions but actually in their heart and in their soul, they're disconnected. Your life with the Lord and with his body, the church, is maybe just a religion. It's not actually a family. The prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament, he warned of such a time, and in Ezekiel chapter 33, it says this starting in verse 30, 
God speaking to Ezekiel, Also thou son of man, the children of thy people still are talking against thee by the walls and in the doors of the houses. And speak one to another, every one to his brother, saying, Come, I pray you, and hear what is the word that cometh forth from the Lord. And they come unto thee as the people cometh, and they sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goeth after their covetousness. And lo, thou art unto them as a very lovely song of one that hath a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they will hear thy words, but they will not do them. And when this cometh to pass, lo, it will come. Then shall they know that a prophet hath been among them. You see, the preacher of God's word ultimately becomes an entertainer. And the people come to hear him so that they can be entertained. And if they're not satisfied customers, well then, they might start to gossip against him. Well, sadly, that actually happens far too frequently in these days. And we live in a day and a time where it's quite easy to say that we love God. It's quite easy to say that we love others. But do we really? Do we really? The peril of these times, the danger, is that selfishness has overcome our society. And as a result, biblical love or charity seems like an extreme concept. In fact, there may be some of you that will listen to this today and immediately start to make an excuse saying things like, well, nobody can really live that way anyway. But I want you to notice that when God says he loves us, he doesn't just say it, amen? He actually proves it. So in Romans 5 and verse 8, it says, But God commendeth, or demonstrates, right, his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if you look down in verse 10 of that chapter, it says, For if when we were enemies, sinners, enemies, separated from God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only begotten son. He loved the world while the world was in sin, while the world was opposed to him. When we were his enemies as sinners behaving badly and far from him connected emotionally, he proved the reality of his love by doing something for us. And if we say that we love someone, or if we say that we love God, We should be able to prove it. We should be able to prove it with our lives. And there should never be a question about our love if it's biblical charity. So in several places, I pulled out a few. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse number 8, I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. Paul speaking to the church to remind them to prove the sincerity of their love to the Lord. The context of 2 Corinthians 8 is giving financially. It goes on in that chapter in verse 24, Wherefore show ye to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. So real genuine love is going to be manifested in proving it, in this case, by giving. Hebrews 6 and verse 10, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. Love has works associated with it. It's laboring which you have showed towards his name, you showed it, and that you have ministered to the saints and do ministry. In this case, God's love or your love that you want to say that you have is a labor, and it proves it, it shows it by ministering to the saints, serving the brethren. Jesus said in John 14, 23, Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he'll keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Let's make a practical application. If you love somebody, you'll listen to what they have to say. And you will make adjustments accordingly. If you love me, Jesus said, you will hear and keep my words. We could literally sit for hours and talk about the many things that we think love should motivate us to do. But rather than doing that, 
I want us to see exactly what love should motivate us to do in this passage of Scripture that we have in front of us today in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and starting in verse number 4. Because verses 4, 5, 6, and 7, and that's what we're going to look at today, describes for us exactly what we can expect whenever biblical charity is active. Which means, conversely, when these things are not active, then charity or love is not being applied. This is the famous passage of Scripture that gives us what I'm titling this message, the definition of charity. The definition of charity. But an alternate title could be, he says he loves me, but how can I know for sure? So follow along as I'll read starting in verse number four. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. This is the passage we go to. This is when we want to know what love or charity is all about. This is where we go, and there's a list of 15 things. And we're going to go through the list, characterized and grouped together in different ways. And whether you noticed it or not, you'll see as we go through them that of those 15 things that were listed, eight of them, just over half, are referred to in the negative. I wonder why that is. Well, maybe it's because it's our human nature to do just the opposite of what love does. And so God points out, well, you know the stuff that you typically do? Yeah, love doesn't do that. Love doesn't do that. But rather, we can look at ways that, as 1 Peter 4 and verse 8 says, that charity covers the multitude of sins. That's what God has for us today. Let's pray and let's get into it. Heavenly Father, as we look at this definition, this description, of charity, biblical love, this agape, the one that you demonstrated toward us, the one that you want us to demonstrate to you and to everyone else around us. God, I pray that you will just clarify to us where we're at in this, in this thing. Uh, we all love some people. Uh, we all have some people we really care about and we say that we love them too. Uh, I pray that you'll help us to see whether or not we actually love them. And maybe we're struggling with people who say they love us and it's been a little iffy Maybe this is a good measuring stick for us to finally be able to understand what's really going on. In any case, Lord, I pray that we'd all humbly submit to you and allow you to make us like you. You are love. And that's who we need to be as well. So we pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Well, we're going to look at it starting with point number one, the attitude of charity. The attitude of charity. We know that charity is something that you do. We saw that last week. But before you decide to begin to do anything, right, you first need the right attitude. There's no question about it. There is an attitude that accompanies charity. And we're going to see this applied in two different ways. The first one is, letter A, towards self. Towards self. And as you'll see in your notes, there's three of these 15 characteristics associated with that. The first one is not puffed up. Not puffed up. Uh, to be puffed up is to be proud. It's to be arrogant. It's to be inflated. It's to, it's to look bigger than you actually are. You're puffed up. For example, the Bible warns us of these things, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse number 1, it says that knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. Knowledge is something that can make you proud. It can make you arrogant. It can make you feel like maybe you're just a little bit bigger than maybe you really are. You know what that means for us? That means that things like education can be dangerous. Now, I'm all for education. I hope my kids get a good one. I, I hope you all get good ones. Um, there's always places and ways we can learn in this world, but, you know, education is a funny thing. It can make men proud. Education, achievement, wealth, power, well, they all come as a result of you learning how to do some things well, right? Those things puff you up. They can make you proud. They can make you arrogant. Well, certainly that's not a charitable attitude, right? So we have a solution. Of course, the Scriptures give us a solution. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse number 6, we would have saw this a long time ago when we studied. It says, And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself into Apollos for your sakes, 
that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. So this problem of being puffed up can be solved very simply by learning not to think of men more than is written of them. Don't think of men above the level of which it is written of them. Written where? Well, of course, written right here. Well, do you know what this has to say about humanity? (laughs) It's not very flattering. Uh, Man doesn't have a really good status on our own before the Lord. What is written of us is that we are nothing. That's what's written of us. You're welcome. (laughs) It's written of us that all of the benefits that we enjoy were given to us by God. It's the grace of God. And especially for us, we didn't have anything to do with the fact that it was the gift that we were born into the wealthiest country on the planet. And regardless of the economic level of your family within the United States, the economic level of your family in comparison to the rest of the world is very wealthy. It's very wealthy. That's a gift. That comes with privilege. That comes with ability to go to good schools, to be in a loving home, things that not everybody has available to them. So you say, I worked hard to learn and to do all these things that I've done. Yeah, okay, I'm sure you did apply yourself, and you should. But at the same time, don't forget the fact that even the opportunities that you had to be able to apply yourself are gifts that are given to you. Don't think of yourself more highly than the Word of God thinks of you. You need to continue to have this attitude as is written in the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, Moses, chapter 8 and verse 17. He's talking about the children of Israel when they go into the promised land. He's worried about how they might react. And he says, And thou say in thine heart, My power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee the power to get wealth. The fact that you have strength, the fact that you have talents, the fact that you have abilities, the fact that you have breath in your lungs is a gift from the Lord. So charity has an attitude within yourself of thankfulness. Of thankfulness, not puffed up. Number two, rejoiceth not in iniquity. Well, iniquity is unrighteousness. Iniquity is injustice, inequality. Iniquity is a false balance. And since Proverbs chapter 11 and verse number 1 says a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, well, certainly charity is never going to rejoice in that, right? Charity is not going to rejoice when another person falls into sin. Whether that person be a believer or not. Charity is never going to rejoice in iniquity when another falls into sin because secretly what they're doing is they're judging themselves as better than that other one. See, I told you, I told you. Ha, ha, ha. And you're comparing yourself to that other person and therefore feeling better about yourself. Well, you may do that from time to time. We may all fall prey to that from time to time. But know as a fact, when that happens, you're not loving. You're not charitable. You can't compare yourself to somebody else's misfortune. And the Bible says so, 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 12. For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. The measuring stick through which we measure how well we think we're doing is not one another. Because we do that. We tend to say, well, you know, I may not be great at this or that, but I'm not as bad as that guy. Well, as soon as you say you're not as bad as that guy, I could show you somebody else that you're not as good as either. But at the end of the day, the answer is only that our standard is Jesus Christ. That's our standard. That's how we're supposed to live, which drives us back to humility, does it not? It drives us back to thankfulness. It drives us back to us seeing ourselves the way the scriptures are written of ourselves. So rather, we should keep this attitude. Should some others around us have iniquity or difficulty or falling or stumbling? 1 Corinthians 10, 12. We saw 2 Corinthians 10, 12. This is 1 Corinthians 10, 12. 
Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. Lest he fall. So, charity doesn't rejoice in iniquity. Charity, the attitude of charity within yourself is humility. It's humility. Number three, seeketh not her own. Seeketh not her own. Wow, this is the textbook definition of selfishness, is it not? Seeking for oneself. It's the definition of dissatisfaction. When we live our lives fighting for our rights, and boy, isn't that rampant today. I mean, every good Laodicean knows how to fight for their rights. When we're fighting for our rights, we're not thinking about others' needs. As long as we get what we need, as long as I get what I want, right? Certainly that's the wrong attitude. Certainly the scriptures speak against such an attitude. That's the wrong attitude to seek within myself after things for myself. 1 Corinthians 10, 24, let no man seek his own. There you go. But what? Rather, every man another's wealth or benefit or prosperity. So Jesus said, Luke 17, 33, Whosoever shall seek to save his life, they're seeking it for himself. It's not going to work. He'll lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life, he's the one that's going to preserve it. That's the paradox of the biblical truth of Christianity. People will end their lives destined for hell because they can't get over the hump of what Jesus said in Luke 17. They work and work and work and work to save their own lives, and at the end of, the, the end of life, they lose it. But if you're willingly give it away and surrender it to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, well then, you're saved. You're saved. So you don't seek your own. You surrender your own. If you're in a love relationship, it's, it's a matter of contentment, is it not? We studied in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as it dealt with issues of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and all of those sort of things. And an interesting statement in verse 27, it says, Art thou bound unto a wife? Seek not to be loosed. Art thou loosed from a wife? Seek not a wife. Now it gets real personal, doesn't it? Because... A single individual might say, well, I would like to be married. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that desire. It's a holy desire, that's fine. But if you're seeking constantly after what you can get, it does demonstrate dissatisfaction with what God has currently given you, does it not? And maybe you're in a situation where you're married and, man, it's just a train wreck right now and there's trouble and difficulty and strife and sadly that happens too and you're like, wow, I, I'm married, but I wish I wasn't. And so you seek ways to get out of it. So don't do that. Don't seek after those things. God wants us to be humble. He wants us to be thankful. He wants us to be content with what we have. The attitude of charity, the definition of charity, was selfless giving. We saw that last week. What it really is is the idea of just eliminating the need to have an attitude about yourself at all. So Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6 and verse 25, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body more than raiment? And in verse 33, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. It's not that any of the things are a problem. It's not that the necessity of, of course you need food and shelter and clothing. But don't worry about those things. That phrase that's translated, take no thought, is the exact same phrase that is then translated as seek or seek not. If you took it in the positive, seek, seek ye first would be the same as saying, take thought rather, for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So, what's the attitude of charity toward oneself? Well, charity causes you to not think of yourself at all. That's what charity does. To not think of yourself at all. 
And I know what you're thinking. You're probably thinking what I would have been thinking. And, and that's that, well, if I don't think of me, who's going to? I mean, you've got to look out for number one. I mean, that's all over the television. You've got to take care of yourself first. And once you take care of yourself, you feel good enough about yourself. Now you've got some leftovers to be a blessing to somebody else. Well, that sounds all good. Might sell products. It's not biblical. It's not biblical charity. God says, give it away, and I'll give it back to you. I'll give it back to you. Because if you put yourself in a community, and that's the theme of 1 Corinthians, you put yourself in a community of believers that are living this way, can you imagine actually living in a community of people that actually live this way? You gladly continue to give it all away because they gladly continue to give to you. Now we're getting close to what the real Christian life is supposed to be all about. So our attitude to ourselves, now let her be our attitude toward others, of course. And you can now, once you have your attitude about yourself squared away, develop the right attitude towards others. We have five characteristics in this list. Envieth not. Again, reported in the negative. Why? Because envy, covetousness, jealousy, driven by selfishness, the flesh. Envy jumps in when, when we're upset when we see others excel in some area and we don't. Oh, man, why does he get that? Oh, man, why'd they get to do that? And why'd they, why'd they get to go there and I didn't get to go there? We're envious. This peril of the last days is described for us in Psalm chapter 73. You should read that entire psalm when you go home. We'll start in verse number 12. Behold, these are the ungodly, who prosper, notice, in the world. They increase in riches. So the believer here says, Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. So the believer is looking out over humanity and they are seeing ungodly people prospering in the world and deep in his heart he's envious, he's jealous. Why am I living this life of a believer? Why am I sacrificing for the Lord when it doesn't seem to get me anything? Why am I doing that? And they start to feel envious until verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then understood I there, here it is, the end. Because while they're running and playing and having a good time and maybe being very successful in whatever their endeavors are, it doesn't really matter, does it? What shall it profit a man if he gain this whole world but lose his own soul? And the psalmist saw their end. And then you continue to read Psalm 73 all the way to the end. And that whole attitude turned on a dime. And now he's praising the Lord and he's content. He doesn't care anymore about what the wicked are getting away with. That's the attitude we ought to have towards others. Not envious, certainly. It's an attitude of genuine joy. You can't, envy says, you can't be happy for other people. If I, if I can be happy for you, that only happens when I'm content with me. And this was a problem in Corinth. Back in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 3, it says, For ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying, what does that typically cause? Strife and divisions. Are you not carnal and walk as men? Galatians 5 and verse 26 says, Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. In Galatians 5, that comes from verse 21, where it describes a long list of characteristics that are the works of the flesh. And among them is envying. Envying. The attitude of charity is an attitude of genuine joy toward others. You can rejoice with them, like it says in Romans 12, 15. Rejoice when they rejoice. Rejoice when they rejoice. When others prosper, when others have opportunities, when others have privileges, when others get blessings, can you genuinely and truly rejoice with them? That's charity. That's what that is. That's the attitude you should have. Number two, thinketh no evil. To think evil, that word think evil, literally comes from a word that means to reckon, to, to impute, to 
to account as evil. Account evil to a situation. This would be a situation where you may not have all the facts and you just decide that you're going to associate evil, some sin, some wrongdoing, with that situation. Would that be loving? No, of course that's not loving. Matthew chapter 9, verse 4, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? Because the charitable attitude, and we'll move a little quickly because there's a lot of things in this list. The charitable attitude, if I'm not going to think evil in a situation where I may not fully understand what's going on, how in the world did that guy get that when he was doing that? I'll tell you how I bet it happened. That's thinking evil. Why don't you just rather be charitable and give the other person the benefit of the doubt? That giving the benefit of the doubt thing, that is loving. Because you don't really know, but rather you choose to think good thoughts. Why would you choose to think evil if you don't actually know? Well, you don't know their, their track record. I don't care. Who cares? Are they able to change? Have I been able? Has the Lord changed me? Yes. Can he change that? Yes. Who are you anyway to really make those decisions? The attitude towards others. Not to think evil, think good, right? Number three, believeth all things. That is all the good things. In other words, charity or love believes all good things. They believe all the things that are right or beneficial or helpful. Uh, we, we could talk about the things that you believe and how you believe them and run references for hours. So as a result, I just decided today I wouldn't do that. Think about the things that you believe in a relationship. What it does not mean when it says that charity believeth all things, I promise you what he's not communicating is, he's not saying that you are just gullible. He's not saying that you just believe whatever anybody says. If you just believe whatever anybody says, my friend, I hate to break it to you, you're foolish. Because this world is perilous. This world has a lot of evil people in it. This world is called this present evil world and people will lie and they will cheat and they will steal and that is what the devil motivates them to do so these are things that actually happen it doesn't mean that you just believe okay whatever you say <laughs> no of course that's not what he means and by the way can i just give it to you on the other side of the coin in fact if anybody expects you to just believe what they say about loving you without proving it in their deeds according to this list, they're not loving. They're not loving. And maybe that's how you can help judge. Because believing all things, of course, it's an, it's an attitude of trust. You now have an attitude toward another individual where something is going on and you just choose to have an attitude toward them that you will trust. That's your attitude. But trust comes with a relationship. It's hard to trust people you've never met and you don't know. But if you have a relationship, you can do that. You're believing the best in others. And even believing the best in others has to be balanced, right? And so that's where we come to the next one, number four, rejoiceth in the truth. Now, I, you know, this is one of my favorites. You, you might not be surprised to know that. Um, some are my favorite and some are not because the ones that are my favorite I do better with and the ones that are not are the ones I struggle with and I probably won't tell you which ones those are. Maybe you already know. But this is a great attitude and quite frankly it's very easy to define. When the Bible uses this word truth, man, it just jumps off the page at you, does it not? Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus Christ is the truth. John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And in John 16, 13, how be it when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. Truth, by definition of the scripture, is Jesus Christ, the word of God, and the Holy Spirit. That's what it is. So if Love rejoices in the truth. It rejoices in the truth of what God says about who He is. 
Okay, but we need to make a little more broad application. We should certainly rejoice in things that are righteous, things that are true. The Bible has great illustrations of this sort of a thing, and the short letters of John at the very end, 2 John and 3 John, only one chapter each, so 2 John, verse number 4, he says, I rejoiced greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth. That's a cause of rejoicing as we have received a commandment from the Father. We don't have problem with that. We don't have, we don't have struggles in our world. We see somebody walking in truth. That shouldn't make you mad. That should make you happy. 3 John chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. So we should rejoice in that when people are growing and developing and walking with the Lord and demonstrating and living His truth for sure. But even in a more general sense, y'all, your attitude toward others should be to value openness and honesty. Should it not? Should you not be openly rejoicing in truth? The attitude towards others should never be one of, of things that are secret or hidden with innuendo. If you're a lover of the truth, I am a lover of the truth, not just in biblical truth, yes, but I want my relationships to be open. I want them to be truthful. My particular style and personality isn't everybody's cup of tea. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> but there was a, you know, 100 years ago when I went to school, there was, when computers were first being invented, true there was a kind of an expression that came out you know as we, we made up an acronym called WYSIWYG it meant what you see is what you get what you see is what you get that's how I live my life now what you see you may not love that's your choice you have free will <laughs> but let me tell you what I'm not and what I think at some level none of us should be and that's fake let me tell you what I'm not. I'm not pretending. Tell you what I'm not. I'm not hiding. I'm not lying. Uh, you may not like what you see, but whatever it is is what it is. It's truthful. It's truthful. And love rejoices in the truth. That's what it does. Uh, there's no room for secrets. There's no room for hiding in a love relationship. Uh, number five, hopeth all things. Now, hope is that interesting word that sometimes people who aren't familiar with the biblical definition get confused. We think about hope, and we're like, oh, I hope so, and we have no idea. We just hope upon hope. But that's not how the Bible uses the term. The Bible uses the term that there is an absolute expectation of something that is still yet future. So the, the definition I love to go to to show that is Titus chapter 2 and verse 13, where it says, we're looking for that blessed hope. What is that? And the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The rapture of the church is our blessed hope. Does that mean, oh, I hope it happens? No, it's absolutely going to happen. But we look forward to that day, although it hasn't happened yet, with hope. It gives me hope today because I know that it's going to happen in the future. That's the definition of hope. Hopeth all things. So that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15... And verse 19, if it, notice this, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most miserable. Now that, you know, isn't the typical Christian, spiritual, mushy thing we like to say. People like to say, well, even if there was an eternal life, just walking with Jesus today, it'd be worth it. Well, that's not what Paul said. Arguably the greatest Christian that ever lived said, if all the hope I got is now, this life's awful. <laughs> Why? Because living the Christian life is a life of surrender. Living the Christian life is a life of sacrifice. Living the Christian life is living a life that says, I'm living for the hope of tomorrow. That doesn't mean I'm void of enjoyment today. That doesn't mean that God isn't blessing me and I'm not having a good time while I'm doing it. It does also mean, though, that much suffering and pain and grief and anguish comes to me because of my stance in the Lord. 
And we'll get to the thing where it says, beareth all things. We are to bear the burdens of one another. I don't want to get ahead of myself. But we have burdens to bear because we're believers in Jesus Christ. And if all the hope I have is just for these 60, 70, 80 years, well, man, that's tough sledding sometimes. And Paul had some tough sledding in his life. He's like, no, I do it because I know there's something on the other side. So in a love relationship, what does this mean exactly? To expect and anticipate a blessed future that even extends beyond this earthly life, the attitude towards others of hoping is an attitude to hope for good things yet coming and looking forward to them with faith. And regardless of the challenges that you're going through today, charity expects better things tomorrow. Hopeth all things. That's what it means. So in other words, this is in your notes. Charity causes you to desire others' happiness. Believe the best and rejoice with them. You desire the best for other people. You believe the best about other people. You rejoice when they rejoice. That's the real battle, though, isn't it? It's in your attitude. It's in your mind. You win this one, and y'all, the rest of it's downhill. It really is. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. It's not easy. So the rest of the characteristics deal with point number two, the action of charity. You saw that coming. The action of charity. Once you start thinking the right things, doing them, well, it's not that hard, right? It won't be forced. So we're going to begin similarly with your actions toward yourself. Okay, letter A, toward self. Suffereth long, endureth all things. Well, those are two different ones, but they're very similar, so I just chose to lump them together today. Suffering long. Well, sometimes we refer to that as patience. Patiently enduring suffering over a long period of time. It's listed as one of the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. It's key in the seven-step process of your spiritual growth and development in 2 Peter chapter 1. And long-suffering, without question, shows love. There's no question about it. Because 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I am so thankful beyond words that the Lord suffered long enough until 1983, yes, 1983, when I received Jesus Christ as my Savior. He suffered with me for 21 years of sin and foolishness. And He suffered long because of His love that he was not willing that I should perish, but he was willing that I would come to repentance. Long-suffering shows love. Now, that's how we would show it towards others, but applied to us, again, Ephesians 4 now, verses 1 through 3, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So this long-suffering is something that's a battle within yourself. It's something that is going on within you, forbearing and long-suffering, right? Tirelessly working to keep peace and unity. Well, that takes patience. That takes patience. That means that charity is never going to have a short temper. Charity's never going to fly off the handle. It's not going to be easily offended. Because charity, the next one, endureth all things. That means that it's actively enduring, obviously, bad things. We can all endure the good ones. For example, the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
For example, persecutions, tribulations, hardness, imprisonment, afflictions, without quitting, endureth all things. In other words, no circumstance is enough to send you packing. Not if you love. No circumstance is enough to send you packing. We're not going to read it all, but in 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 28, you have a long passage where Paul describes some of the tough times he had to go through, a lot of the difficult circumstances that he had to go through, where he was left and beaten and left for dead and stoned and whipped and shipwrecked and, and all of these things and hungered and thirst and all these things that he went through. He had some tough times. He endured them all. He endured them all. But you know, also, there's some things that we have to endure that, well, they're not just from the devil. I mean, some things come from the Lord, like chastening. That's what Hebrews 12 says, starting in verse 5. It says, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth? Not. So there are times in your life when the Lord needs to teach you a lesson and on occasion take you out to the woodshed. And when he takes you out to the woodshed, you're going to get mad at God and buckle up your fists and stomp your feet and say, I'll show you I won't read your Bible anymore. <laughs> Good luck. Uh, I'll show you I won't go to church anymore. Okay, well, you know, it's your life. Roll your dice. The Lord's doing it because he loves you. He's doing it because you're messed up. You need to learn something. And if you'll endure it, well, that's, that's what you should do. That's how you should behave. That's how, that's how you should act. Hey, man, did you figure this out yet? Stuff happens in this world, right? It ain't all good. Those of you that are married, remember your, you remember your marriage vows? For better or for worse. For richer or for poorer. In sickness and in health, right? I mean, that's what you said, are you willing to love your spouse even when it really is worse? You say, well, when I didn't have that in mind. Well, I mean, it's what you said. <laughs> you don't run when it gets tough. You're not a quitter. Because charity stays. Charity stays. Not easily provoked. Now, I do want to point out that it does say not easily. I mean, we're just reading. It's possible to be provoked, but you should not be one who is easily provoked, right? To be provoked is to be irritated, is to be angered, right? That shouldn't happen easily. Uh, I thought about this this week, and I thought, well, thinking about being provoked, take the R-O-V out of the word, and it's like being poked. <laughs> who likes that? Nobody likes that. And it's possible that you can be provoked, but it shouldn't be easy. Why? Well, because we should be long-suffering, and we should be enduring all things, right? So you think of a parental relationship in Ephesians 6, 4, and ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. By the way, that term fathers in the masculine really does cover mothers as well, by the way. That is parents. Provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Do we love our children? Of course we love our children. But that's not a loving thing to do, to provoke them to wrath. That's not a loving thing to do. Galatians 5.26, we saw earlier, let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another. Okay, well, we shouldn't provoke one another. But this says for ourselves that we should not receive the provoking easily. We are not easily provoked. Again, that means you have a long fuse. That means you can put up with a lot because you're patient, because you endure. That means you don't let others get to you. That's because you don't get your worth. Your value does not come from others. Your value comes from the Lord. So you're not easily provoked, right? Number three, vaunteth not itself. To vaunt is to lift up. So the idea would be to boast or to brag. Charity doesn't do that. Why? Because charity gives. Charity gives selflessly. And the selfless part nullifies the boasting part, right? 
Boasting, by the way, in case you don't remember, in Ephesians 2 and verse 9, is not allowed in heaven, right? Our salvation is by grace through faith and not of works because God don't want no boasting up in here. (laughs) You're not coming up in here and telling me that you did something to get you here. It's not of your works. There's no boasting. So we might as well start practicing by not doing it now. Right? James 4, 16. But now you rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. It's evil. That's not loving. It's selfish. It draws attention to you. It's thinking that you achieved everything. You vaunt yourself. It's not giving glory to God. It's not being humble. Vaunting yourself and boasting is... It's more of the actual verbal proclaiming of your greatness. It's not just having the attitude like we saw earlier. It's actually saying, I'm, I am kind of awesome. <laughs> so, toward yourself, charity pursues peace, taking a wrong done while requiring no attention to itself. You see that theme? Whether it's your thoughts or whether it's your actions. Charity requires for you to not even be a player. You're not even in the equation. That's what charity requires of you, nothing. Why? Colossians 3.3, you're dead. You're dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. That's why. So we'll finish up with your actions toward others. This won't take long. Number one, toward others, uh, doth not behave itself unseemly. Unseemly is inappropriate, rude, unbefitting Jesus Christ. So in other words, charity always acts appropriately. Charity shows regard for others' needs. You take them into account if you love them, and you take yourself out of account. That's what it is. It's actually being aware, caring enough about being aware of your surroundings. If I say this, how will it affect others? If I do this, how might others read it or think about it? Now, you can't always know exactly how somebody might legalistically judge you, and you can't be a prisoner to that. But at the same time, if if you just, I don't care what they think. I'm going to do what I'm going to, okay, well, that's not loving. Just know it's not loving. I'm not saying, I mean, we do it from time to time, but it's wrong. It's not loving. It's unseemly. It's inappropriate. And once you're an adult, it's just not acceptable to be inappropriate. It's just not. Okay, so not being inappropriate, well, that's just being kind. That's the next one, just being kind. Mercy, care, compassion, right? Romans 12, 10, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love and honor, preferring one another. You know what kindness is. Ephesians 4, 32, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Not just to other believers in Jesus Christ, hopefully, certainly. But God's people should be known for being kind to everyone all the time. That's what we should be known for. And I don't know, sometimes it's hard to be kind to people who are just nasty outside of the body of believers. Sometimes it's hard to be kind inside the body of believers. Because... We expect more from each other, don't we? We expect that y'all know better than to fill in the blank. So whereas I might put up with that in the outside world, I ain't putting that up up with that with you. Okay, well, how about we just be kind? How about we just do that? Jesus said in Luke 6, 35, but love ye your enemies, right? I mean, that's what God did for us, right? While we were yet sinners, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. Love ye your enemies and do good and lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great, and you shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be therefore merciful as your Father also is merciful. Man, that's the kind of kindness That's what he's talking about. People that will never repay you. People that will take advantage of you. People that will curse you behind your back. Be kind to those people. That's what love is. 
Now, on one hand, that's easy to understand. Love is kind, it's caring, it's preferring others, it's tender, it's good. Whether or not they deserve it. That's just the characteristic of how love behaves. It's how God behaves and we are to be godly. And lastly, beareth all things. And to bear something is to put up with it. It's to support it, as in bearing a load, right? So the Bible says in Galatians 6, 2, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, 1, Would to God ye could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. By the way, we would all benefit from extending this courtesy one to another. We all exercise a little bit of folly here and there, right? If we would just bear with one another's folly from time to time, I think we'd get down the road a little further, right? You see a load out there, get under it and help lift. Help carry it for others. That's loving. So charity offers help in support of others. Oh, and with a pleasant demeanor. He doesn't say, well, I'll help you, but I tell you what, I'm so tired of this thing, I can't believe he. No, you do it and you're, you just, you're happy about it. You're glad to do it. You're willing. Why? Because that's what the Lord would do. And, and you're so full of the Lord, you're, you're just happy to do it. That's how he wants you to behave. That's how charity works. And by the way, that's how you can know if somebody really loves you. Or if you really love someone else. This is the measuring stick. If they do what charity does, or if they don't do what charity doesn't do, (laughs) you have your answer. Don't be deceived. Because people use words all the time, and they don't mean them. They don't mean them. And if I could say anything, you teenage girls, for example, critical time in your life where there will be boys that will come into your life and they will say, anything to get what they want to get and they don't love you frequently they're just they're just manipulating you right that's not loving that's not what you want to look for you will do well young ladies you will do well to just go with the bible god gave you that thing for your benefit to help you to protect you. And that applies to any of us, does it not? That applies to any of us. Can I just give you a word of advice before we finish? If someone in your life is saying that they love you, I mean, that's always nice to hear. It's nice to hear somebody say they love you. But they're not showing it by these biblical parameters of love or charity. Can I just encourage you just to pray for them? Rather than sticking your finger under their nose or pointing out these verses and yelling, can you be kind? Can you just pray? Do you, can you understand that even if you're suffering in somewhat of a duplicitous relationship, that their real problem is not with you? Their real problem is with God. Can you recognize that? That's why Jesus said, Matthew 22, verse 36, famous verses. Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And it's interesting because the guy comes to Jesus and he asks one question, and Jesus gives two answers. Why? Well, because if you really love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, you know what it will cause you to do? It will cause you to do the second one, to love your neighbor as yourself. And the last time I checked, none of us have any problem at all loving ourselves. We're really good at it. And if we will love others like we love ourselves, I think that we'll be doing great. But here's where it gets a little sticky. Because by these same parameters that we just looked at today, would you think that it's possible for somebody else to understand if you really love God or not? You say, don't label people, preacher. Okay. 
But you know, sometimes the right response is, I'm not labeling anybody. A lot of people label themselves, and all I'm doing is reading the label. It's not my fault. It saddens me. But you know what? I'm not going to be deceived. I'm not going to be deceived just because somebody wants to sing a pretty song, you know, and, and tell a good story. If your life can't back it up, I'll still love you. I'll still encourage you. I'll still help you. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to buy what you're selling. <laughs> Go sell it to somebody else. Because God gave me his word, and I rejoice in the truth. I rejoice in the truth. And can I just say this as we wrap up and we're done with this now, that God loves you so much. Can I just remind you? He loves you so much. He proved all of that while you were his enemies. Uh, we have relationships with people that maybe aren't going so great. We're not really, you know, we're not just feeling it. It's not going great. And can we love them anyway? And, and if you're here today and you're just not 100% sure that you've ever experienced that love of God and salvation, man, none of the other stuff I said is more important than that. The depth of Christ's love is so much deeper and greater than the depth of your sin. I don't care what you've been through. I don't care where you've been. I don't care how dark your past has been. I don't care how struggling, how difficult your situation is right now. And I'm sure it's serious. The Lord saw fit to have you here today to hear this message so that you can know how much he loves you. That even while you were enemies, he gave his life. He laid down his life and said, here, take it. You have mine. I'll take yours. You take mine. I'd like to offer that invitation to all of you today. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.